How's your journey to belonging going? It's all right. My name is Eric, and I want to welcome you this morning. Hey, real quick, before we get too far into this thing, we had a, so we have a group of people who left here and were on their way to Haiti. I want to report really briefly that they are there. I think we have a picture of them. Uh, so there they all are. The, the Haiti team has arrived. Please keep them in your prayers and keep them in your thoughts and try to stay on top of what's going on there. They're doing incredibly exciting but incredibly difficult things, and we want them to know that we are with them as much as we can be during this time. So uh, with that being said, hey, I'm in a really good mood today, right? And I want to tell you why. This is why. (laughs) This is like the best thing I've seen on my phone in a long, long time. In fact, if you change that first digit, you could go 56, you could go 46. I'm beaming. I'm ecstatic. All right. So uh, I want to talk to you guys this morning about uh, community, and, and I want to get there by, by starting off with this. Anybody, anybody seen this symbol lately? Yeah, there's a story uh, that's going around. There's a, a businessman in Australia who has taken upon himself to save us, the rest of the world, billions of dollars in time spent by writing the letter or the word the. He's decided that we waste so much time writing those three letters that he's like, you know what? We need to shorten the word the to just a symbol. And he's got this whole video about it where he's like, you know what? We don't write the word and anymore a lot. And has the ampersand, right? It's got its own key on the keyboard. He's like, why can't the have its own key on the keyboard. It's the most written word in the English language. And he's like, you know what? We've got to change that. We're going to shorten it to the symbol. And he's on this huge quest to introduce a new word, a new symbol into the English language. And the reason that's pertinent for us is because, well, this is a path that E3 has walked for a while. You see, I wasn't around for the first couple years of E3, but I've heard stories of this battle that would take place between these two factions of people, led by one side led by Pastor Mark, another side led by, I don't know, people who would probably remain silent, all about this word connexity. Was that a moan from... For the record, that was my wife that just... So connexity... By all, and by all, conf- like we'll just confess, it's an invented word. I don't know who, ma- who made it. Was it Justin Barfield or, or some? Oh, it's Pastor Mark. Made up this word that simply meant connecting people with community. And for years, he has tried to get this word officially introduced into the dictionary as a word. Now, if you know Pastor Mark at all, he's moved on to other things because he tends to do that. But... For a while, he was convinced, like, we need to make this word a part of the English language. I don't know if it's, it's kind of a verb, it's kind of a noun, I'm not really sure, but it's our language, and it means connecting people with community. And as we go through the Pathways journey together, uh, we're going to be talking about connexity. I'm probably going to use the word community a little bit more, because let's face it, it's in the dictionary. I feel more comfortable with that. But community is simultaneously the mechanism to belong and the destination of belonging, isn't it? Like we're all on this journey to say, be a part of something. We are on a journey to say, come into this community and be a part of it. 
But one of the main ways that you become a part of a community is that, well, you do community together. And it changes you. So it's a, it's a fuzzy subject because of that. It's the backbone, it's the way, and it's also the destination. So I want to do a talk that essentially is, is pretty straight ahead this morning. And I it kind of got to thinking about things after Mark's talk last week. And I really just want to tell you why we do community, why we do it, why we take it so seriously, and why it's not an optional thing. And I want to tell you that uh, the very first, if you have a tension about community, because I have a tension about community, if you know me at all, I'm a bit of a loner. I could spend hours by myself. If you know me at all, you know that being around people for a period of time drains me. And I have a tension with community, and I imagine other, other uh, folks in this room have a tension with community too, that you would say, yeah, you know what? I do. I like people, but being around them kind of drains my batteries a little bit. Others of you would say, no, man, give it to me. More, more, more people, more conversations. So if you have a tension with community like I do, uh, I want to tell you, the, the, right, out of the, right out of the gate, we're, I'm just going to tell you, we do community because God commands it. And for those of us who have attention, they were like, oh, man. But I'm leading strong. We do community simply because God has commanded it. And he's commanded it from the get-go. So I want to just recap the story. If you are a person of faith, I want to recap your story, our story together. And it starts with God in Genesis 12 calling a man named Abraham. And he calls Abraham because God's creation story has gotten off track in Genesis 2. Things are degenerating. Relationships have been broken. Creation, creation is broken. And God wants to fix it. And so he calls a man named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a blessing. And he says, you're going to have a family, Abraham. And your family is going to be the way that I restore my creation. God's rescue project starts with him calling one man to become a family, a community, so that the whole world can be rescued. And then he also tells Abraham, your family is going to be a nation, a great nation, and the nation is going to be the way I restore the world, the way I fix the world. So God from the get-go says, community, nation, family is going to be the way that I set things right. So Abraham has a couple sons and then uh, his sons have 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. The family has begun. The community has begun. And then that family goes into Egypt and they become slaves and then God liberates them and he takes them to the promised land. And then in that process, the family becomes a nation, but the community is growing. And the story of God's redemption rescue project through the community is underway. Now the nation kind of gets off track. Eventually Jesus comes as part of God's community, as part of the family of God, the, the people of God, Israel. 
And God sets creation right through the cross, through, through Jesus' work on the cross in a very cosmic way. And the story goes on. Now, God commands community so thoroughly and God's um, God, and community is written through the story of God so thoroughly that a lot of scriptures that we think are about us as individuals aren't. You see, the New Testament is written with God's idea in mind of the community is the way I work. The church is the way I work. But because of uh, translation challenges and because of our culture, a lot of scriptures that we read and have read if you've grown up in the church that think they speak to, about us as individuals, they don't. They were written with the church in mind. I want to show you uh, what I mean through a couple of, of scriptures. But real quick, I just want to give you a primer. Like Greek is written in such a way that verbs indicate singular or plural uh, very, 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 very effectively. But English is a difficult language to translate into. So when sometimes when we read uh, words in English that were written in Greek, we miss how clearly they were written to a group of people rather than an individual. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to show you a couple of things that you may understand, have grown up as understanding of about you. And I want to kind of show you how God has written community so thoroughly into the scriptures. The first scripture comes Philippians, comes from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And it's just this, when, when Paul writes to this church and he says, always be full of joy. Again, I'm telling you, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Now, if you read that, and you read it as, as a word written to you as an individual, that can be a challenging concept. Because I don't always feel like rejoicing, okay? First of all, I have a melancholy disposition as it is. I'm kind of like, yeah, it's all right, it's cool. But sometimes, if you're in a room like this, sometimes we come into this and we don't feel like rejoicing. Some of us come in grieving. Some of us come in hurt. Some of us come in limping physically or emotionally. And if you look at the scripture and you're like, well, that's just about one person rejoicing. What do I do? I guess I, I'm supposed to just put on a happy face and rejoice even though my heart is breaking inside. But this verse isn't written to an individual. The verbs here are plural. Paul's writing to the church, a group of people, to say, church, everybody in this room, you need to be rejoicing. Now, does every single one of the individuals in this room need to rejoice? I don't know if that's possible. Sometimes we're hurt. But the beauty of a passage like this is it says, hey, if one of us is broken and mourning and sad and another of us, another person in this room is joyful and life is going great, well then, joyful person, you do the rejoicing for the person that's hurt. You pick up your brother or your sister or your friend and say, I will rejoice for you and I'll remind you that God is good. It changes things. It's not written to you as an individual. It's written to the whole church. Church, we need to be a rejoicing, joyful church. Now, another passage, and actually Mark alluded to this last week as well, comes from the book of Ephesians. This is a little bit clearer in the English, but it still slips into individualistic language. It says what? For we 
are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago, right? The we is there. But if you've grown up in church, a lot of times you'll see that, you know, like, oh, let me remind you that, that you as an individual are God's masterpiece. Now, hear, hear what I'm saying clearly. God has created you as an individual. Psalm 139 says, man, he knit you together. He knows everything about you. But that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying, you, church, you are God's masterpiece. In your differences, in your political differences, in your diversity, in the fact that you don't look like you over here, that you have different values, that you see the world differently, and yet God calls this group of people, this group of busted up, crazy human beings, a masterpiece. The community is the masterpiece. We as individuals are a part of it. But the community is the thing that Paul's talking about here. It's laced through and through. In fact, if you want to read really the way community plays itself out in Paul's world, in the New Testament world, read the book of Ephesians. Because Paul just goes off on how important the church is. And if you read Ephesians from the viewpoint of saying, what does Paul have to say about the church? God, why is the church important? Read this book. It's only like two, three pages long. It'll tell you why. In fact, I just want to talk about community today from just a couple verses in this, in this book. So I, wanna, uh, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 3. It's going to be here on the side screens. And I just want to spend a couple moments here. This is how thoroughly God values the community. Ephesians 3 chapter, uh, verse 10 says this. God's purpose in all of this. So Paul has just gotten done laying out why Jesus had to come and live and die and be re resurrected again. God's purpose in all of this was to use, and what does the text say? The church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says this was the eternal plan which God carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't want you to just like blow by what Paul is saying here. Because a lot of us say that Jesus was the point. That the cross and the resurrection was the point. But Paul's saying something in addition to that, isn't he? He's saying that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the way that God made the church to be the point. We kind of take community as optional. We take community uh, and then the church is kind of like, well, that's something, but man, you know, maybe they have good coffee, but it's early in the morning. I don't like to get up in the morning and that person always annoys the tar out of me. Maybe I won't go. If you read the scriptures, Paul's saying, no, Jesus came and lived and died and was raised again so that the church could display the wisdom of God. The Greek word there is Sophia. And it just means, wisdom means the way God wants the world to work. Just understand that. 
God's wisdom means the way God sees the world working. And that verse says that if you want to know the way God wants the world to work, you have to look at what? The church, the community. In all of its funky, annoying, diverse beauty. So we do community because Jesus came and died and was raised again for community. The second reason we do community is because Jesus modeled it. And we at E3 believe that we should wrap our lives and orient our lives around what Jesus did. We believe that we're called to follow him in every way that we can. And Jesus interacted with community in very intentional ways. And so I want to just walk through some of the ways that Jesus interacted with community, the levels that he interacted with community on. This comes from a variety of, of, of passages in the gospel. The first group of, of, of community that Jesus interacted with was called the crowd. If you read the gospels, the, the crowd is always there. And the crowd kind of uh, orbits around Jesus. And sometimes people move out of the crowd into a level of discipleship, but mostly they're just kind of there. They're the people that haven't made decisions yet about whether they want to follow this Jesus. Eventually, a lot of them cry out for his death, but most of the gospels treat the crowd as kind of a neutral object. Jesus does not yell at the crowd, at least in the gospel of Mark. They're there. Sometimes he feeds them. Sometimes he talks to them, but they're just there. They're part of his relational world. Then we move into the, the first kind of frontier that we cross. We cross from the crowd, and some people decide they want to follow Jesus. They want to become disciples. So they start following him, him around. And with this, uh, we can go back to the previous slide, Eddie, I'm sorry. Uh, the disciples introduce some tension into Jesus' relational world. Because do you know who Jesus yells at more than anybody else after the religious leaders? His disciples. So what this tells me that if you're going to do community the way Jesus did community, you're probably going to experience some frustration. Because if anybody could get community right, if anybody could create a community that was perfect, wouldn't it be Jesus? Come on, you can even use a Sunday school answer here. Wouldn't it be Jesus? Yes, it would be Jesus. And yet, his disciples are always frustrating him. His disciples don't get it. His disciples are like, well, I don't know. You know, Jesus actually, can we call down fire on that village that we were just in? And Jesus is like, you have got to be kidding me. He's frustrated with them. That's part of his community world. From there we go to the level of what the gospel is called, the 72 in the gospel of Luke. Jesus calls 72 of his disciples and sends them out to exercise demons, to heal people, to preach. He sends these folks out. And with this, Jesus' communal world begins to interact with mission. So Jesus is like, well, if you want to do community the way I do community, be prepared for frustration, but also be prepared for mission. There's a point to this. So he sends the 72 out, but they're part of the disciples, so they're still frustrating Jesus. 
And then we move on to another major frontier. We go from the 72 down to the 12. Jesus has called 12 disciples to be representative of the tribes of Israel. And with this, we get a few more things added into Jesus' relational world. I want you to get a picture of these disciples. We kind of think that they're sort of like Robin Hood's merry men following Jesus around Palestine. That's not the way this works. Jesus starts off and he calls three fishermen, Peter, James, John. Most scholars think that Peter is probably a little bit of a poor fisherman. James and John, probably a little bit more wealthy. So from the get-go, we would say Jesus' community involves some diversity. It involves some economic diversity. You've got a fisherman who's struggling. You've got a fisherman who own a couple boats. They're doing all right, but they're not the same. You ever sat down with somebody, if you're really wealthy and someone who's really uh, resource-challenged, do they see the world the same way? No. Economics create diversity. And Jesus' 12 inner circle that's there. And then Jesus goes out and he also invites a guy named Matthew who's a tax collector. And this is interesting. See, tax collectors would sit up, they worked for the, the Roman Empire, and they would sit up and they would, they would take uh, taxes on goods. They were not liked, much like tax collectors today. First century, no different. But they were also seen to be collaborators with Rome. So if you were Jewish and you saw a tax collector, you're like, you're working for the enemy. You're working for the people who are oppressing my people. Jesus invites one of these guys into his twelve. And not only that, this is a small town. One of the things that the tax collector would tax was fish. And as they would tax, as they would collect the taxes for things, they would tend to take a little bit off the top and line their own pockets because it wasn't a well-paying job. So when Jesus is 12, he's like, hey, Peter, James, John, hey, I invite some, I've somebody, uh, invited somebody into our growth group. It's Matthew, this tax collector. And Peter, James, and John are like, that's the guy that's been stealing from us for years and works for Rome. You think your growth group has tension in it? And not only that, then he invites uh, this guy called Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots really hated anybody who had anything to do with Rome violently. They're like, we got to kill him. We got to kill him. Again, imagine that first growth group meeting. You know, serve some, some sweet tea to everybody and be like, hey, this is the zealot, this is the tax collector. I know you want to kill each other, but let's just talk about, let's do the going deeper this week. It'll be all right. <laughs> so you have frustration because the disciples still aren't getting it. There's mission now, but there's radical diversity. Oh my gosh. But not only that, these 12, they betray Jesus. We think that Judas Iscariot was actually a zealot-like person as well. He ends up being the one that, like, I'm going to turn Jesus in. So the 12, if you want to do community the way Jesus did community, be prepared for frustration, mission, diversity, betrayal. That doesn't sound so pleasant. Jesus has another level of community called the three. Peter, James, and John, his closest. They don't, get, they, don't, they don't do much better. 
At one point, James and John are like, hey, Jesus, can we be like the best? Can we have the best seats at the banquet? Can we have the best seats in the kingdom when you become king? And like Jesus again is like, oh. Jesus models community, but it's not community that we think. We think community is gonna be like all birds landing on our shoulders and everyone just hugging together and singing kumbaya. But if you follow Jesus, this is what community looks like in his world. And shouldn't he have gotten, been able to get it right? And if he experiences this, why do we think we can do any better? Why do we get upset when someone doesn't measure up to our standards in community? Jesus lived this. Frustration, mission, diversity, betrayal, and rejection. Peter denies at the end he ever even knows Jesus. And Jesus ends up on the cross alone. His relational world ends with him deserted. But you know what Jesus never does? Jesus never abandons the idea of community, does he? If you know his story, does he ever get to the point where it's like, you guys have made me so angry. Just stay in Galilee. I can do the rest myself. I want to push maybe just on this just a little bit. Couldn't have Jesus just left his community behind and gone to Jerusalem, turned over the temple tables, gone to Pilate and said, I'm the king. And ended up on the cross just the same. He did. He could have, but he didn't. Jesus never, ever abandons the idea of community. And if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we need to own up to that. You know, Jesus never deserted the disciples. He had every, every reason to. Who's experienced more rejection than Jesus did? He never turns his back. It just goes on. Jesus eventually commissions those to start uh, the church in a new way. If you want to, I've written this into the going deeper. If you want to see what Jesus had in mind for you and the prayer that he prayed for you, the folks who would take on the role of community after he was gone, John 17. It's his prayer for us, the way we would do community. Now, the, the last reason that we need community is simply this. We do community because we need it. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't even play one on TV. But every once in a while, I, I'm curious, right? So there's periods, this is gonna sound incredibly geeky, but just bear with me. That there are times in my life, repeated times, when I have tried to understand quantum physics. I have tried to understand deep, deep science because I'm just that guy. I don't know a lot about quantum physics. I don't know a lot about deep science, but I know that at the frontiers of science, what people are discovering is that reality is much more fuzzy than we think. And that we're coming to grips with the fact that it's difficult for us to know anything objectively. It's difficult, if not impossible, for us to study things at the atomic level without us changing what we're watching. It's almost impossible for us to know anything objectively about reality. We try to know things about ourselves. It's important for us to understand who we are as human beings. And I would, I would suggest that there's a couple ways that we, that we do that. One of the ways that we do that is by creating 
portraits of ourselves. Self-portraits. Here's a couple self-portraits of some famous artists. That's Van Gogh, Picasso, Rembrandt, and the master, Leonardo da Vinci. Some of us try to understand ourselves by creating self-portraits. And portraits are great. You show the world, here, who, who, this is who I am. But a portrait is kind of weird because when you're creating a self-portrait, you can kind of erase a line here and there. If you're working in oil, you can kind of nudge and, and craft the oil to blend so that maybe your big nose is a little bit smaller than, than what it really is. And you can craft the reality in a portrait in a very unique way. Now, some of us try to, try to show the world who we are by, uh, by this way, right? If you, if you know this, wait. It's, uh, it's by doing a self-portrait, right? The, the selfie. Let me see if I can do this here. Snap the portrait, right? Put it on Facebook if it looks really, really good. And snapshots are a great way to show the world who you are, right? Put it up, this is who I am, with duck lips and everything, right? <laughs> but here's the thing about snapshots. Snapshots capture a moment in time, don't they? You may capture a snapshot of you at your best, where you look just amazing, and you put it on Instagram, and you put it on Facebook, and you're like, that's me at my best. Snapshots also may capture you at your worst, at which point your friends put it on Instagram and your friends put it on Facebook. But it's one moment in time. Nobody knows what happened before that. Nobody knows what happened after that. Snapshots can't capture who we are in a consistent way because it was just that one thing, that one time. And so we need community because we need to know things about ourselves and we can't do it in a self-portrait because, let's face it, we fake it. We can't do it in a snapshot because, let's face it, it's just one moment at our best or at our worst. What we need are mirrors. And community is like a mirror. Because when you stand in front of a mirror, you can go, oh, I got broccoli in my teeth. I get that out of there. Oh, my clothes don't match, which is my case most of the time. Maybe I should change my shirt. Community is like a mirror for us. Community is sitting down in a group of people and somebody going, let me tell you the truth about you. You're not as bad as you think. Let me tell you the truth about you. You bless people with your presence. You smile and you light up the room. Let me tell you the truth about you. Let me tell you the truth about you. You got a problem. Let me tell you the truth about you. You withdraw. Let me tell you the truth about you. We welcome you here. We need community because we need mirrors. We need to know who we are, and a portrait won't do it, and a snapshot won't do it, but a mirror will. And we stand in front of it, and we look at it, and we go, 
Maybe I need to change some things about myself. But here's the deal. Community is not fun. Remember what Jesus experienced. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's messy. It's complicated. It requires sacrifice. It requires commitment. And if you don't think it requires any of those things, if you're like, I've never experienced those things, I'm just going to tell you, you've probably never experienced community then. Because that's just the truth. Pastor said this once, I don't know if it's common or not, but he said, think about your relational world, okay? If, if you can't think of a person in your relational world that's really, really difficult and challenging to deal with, then guess what? You're that person. <laughs> and I believe that. That's just the nature of this thing called community. It's messy. It requires sacrifice and commitment but we desperately, desperately need it because we need to know the truth of who we are. I wanna leave you with uh, this last section. I want us to take a last few minutes and look at Ephesians chapter four together. Because okay, maybe you get the fact that we need community. Maybe you get the fact that God's commanded it, Jesus has modeled it, and we need it. So how does it work? Well, you can spend a long time unpacking this, but I just wanna read one more statement from this uh, letter to the church. So Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, and that's a plural, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Church, you've been called to this. You've been called to be a community. For you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowances for each other's faults because of your love. So I want to pause right there. So Paul tells you, you want to do community? Here's what you got to have. You got to have patience. You got to have gentleness. You got to make allowances. And we go, okay, 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 okay. But you know what we need before any of that? And this is where I think the rubber meets the road for us. You know what we need before that? We need honesty. Because you don't got to be, you don't have to be patient with anybody who won't tell you the truth about themselves or about you. You don't need to be gentle with people who hide all the time in your growth group. But once the masks come off and once the honesty starts to flow, then you need to be patient. Then you need to be gentle and humble and make allowances. So to do community the way God wants us to do community, to do community the way Jesus modeled it, you've got to be honest with yourself, with other people. You've got to be the mirror and you've got to look in the mirror. So then he goes on. If you can do that, he says this. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace. For there is one body, listen to the repetition here, one body, one spirit, just, you've been, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is what? One Lord, one faith, one baptism and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Do you think Paul wanted to drive a point home there? What's the point? One, unity. Paul says the church is gonna look crazy. The church is gonna look diverse. It's gonna have a lot of different people in it, but there's one faith. So community has to, be, has to have unity involved in it. 
And the way, one of the ways we preserve unity is by when we look in the mirror or when something gets shown to us and it rubs us the wrong way and we have conflict with our friends, with our brothers and sisters, we need to be serious about resolving it. Mark, again, last week, this is funny the way we've been thinking together, thinking alike. Uh, he mentioned Matthew 18. Matthew 18 shows you how to resolve conflict in the Jesus way. So in your growth groups this week, I wrote some stuff about Matthew 18. Take a look at it because that's what preserves unity. Not the absence of conflict, but how you resolve conflict drives home unity. And and I'll leave you with this. The one other thing that that our communities need, and they need mission. Anybody know what the mission of E3 is? It's in our growth, it's on our purpose book. To make, mature, and mobilize fully devoted followers of Christ. Anybody know what the mission of your growth group is? To make, mature, and mobilize fully devoted followers of Christ. If your growth group isn't doing that, you're just people sitting in a room, eating good food, bad food, drinking tea, drinking wine together. I don't know what you do. You don't have a mission. You're just people in a room. Your community exists, your growth group, that crazy group of people that you meet with every week exists to make, mature, and mobilize fully devoted followers of Christ. And if you are not doing one of those things or all three of those things, you need to say, guys, we gotta fix something because we've gotten off course with what the vision of community really, really is is it's mission it's always been mission Genesis 12 God calls a community that community is still called now we don't sit in a room just to stare at each other we sit in a room to make mature and mobilize fully devoted followers of Christ Would you guys pray with me?